to jump into the book of Judges. All right, now we, uh, we started Judges last week uh, talking about this, this reality of a kingless kingdom. And we saw the call to the Israelites to take the promised land and to take the promised land from the various ites who live there so that they might be given a place free of idolatry, free of temptation, free of uh, the temptation to, to fall away from their God. Now, if you have questions about that aspect, about why they're called to, to conquer these people, why they went into the land, how that could be commanded by God, uh, that first sermon will help you there. And so go back and, and listen to it if you haven't heard it. But today, uh, we're taking kind of a, a different focus. Last week was very, it was very narrow and from a very human perspective. All right, who had, who had done their job, who had failed, who had conquered whom, which ites remained and which ites were defeated. But now we're, we're zooming out a bit. We're zooming out so that we can see, all right, what is the, the whole story of Judges about? And we're going to see that it's about cycles. Uh, a, a helpful illustration here is the, is the illustration of a toilet. All right, a toilet and a little spider in the toilet struggling to survive. All right, when you flush the toilet, all right, the spider, he, he swirls around. And he's, he's struggling and he's struggling and he's swirling, swirling, swirling until he shoots down. All right. I don't particularly like spiders. That's a great, great pleasure for me to watch. Uh, unfortunately, that's the book of Judges. It's the spiral, the slow and steady spiral down into further and further idolatry and darkness and sin. As cycle after cycle, the people more half-heartedly repent. As they, they run from idolatry less and less, and they, they get more and more committed to it. As the judges themselves are less and less these noble deliverers and simply warmongers fighting amongst themselves. And we're going to see this cycle and hopefully come to understand the cycle better. This cycle that, that starts with idolatry and then God reacts and calls his people back, but it does inevitably spiral down unless, unless we see the one, the one person who can break the cycle, Jesus Christ. So, in all of this, we hope to see Jesus, this great king, who can break the cycle that, that draws us down into idolatry and death, that he might be, be powerful in our lives and, and work in us. Now, we're going to be reading uh, through Judges chapter 2 through chapter 3, verses like, Verse 6. So that's a ton of text. I am not going to read all that. I'm going to read it as we get to it. It's, it's a little bit repetitive. So as we get there, I will read those passages. So follow along. If you have your Bibles, that can be helpful. Otherwise, things will be up on the screen. Let's go ahead and pray uh, that we might be helped with all these things. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you as a, a humble people knowing that you are great and glorious and that you have great promises for us, that you have made uh, covenants, that you've vowed to do great things, and yet we can be an idolatrous and rebellious people. 
And Father, as we look at the Israelites, we ask that we would not be uh, superior, but that we'd see the, the same struggles pulling our hearts down as well. And Father, would you deliver us? Would you help us to know you're working? Would you help us to see the story as you would see it? And Father, would you help us to look to Jesus Christ, our great King? We pray in his name. Amen. All right. So first, we're going to see the, the ongoing struggle in the book of Judges. What is the real problem going on here? And last week, we saw that, well, the problem started because we didn't, the Israelites, they didn't cast the people from the land. They didn't cast the idolatrous nations out of the promised land. And so it wasn't this kind of clean slate, free from idolatry and false worship. Instead, because of their failure, they left themselves open to temptation. Now, before we start to say, well, well, didn't God say he would deliver them? Why didn't he do it? What was really happening? Uh, We get this kind of shocking revelation to us. And it's helpful that there's kind of the the human account of the story. And then God says, what's really happening? So often, we we tell the story very differently than than God does. And what does he say? He says, well, yeah, you didn't cast the people from the land, but... That wasn't on me. That was on you. And it was on you because you didn't want to cast them from the land because you wanted to worship their idols. That you wanted their gods. You wanted to worship alongside them. And that's why you failed to conquer them. You wanted them in your midst because you wanted the power and the comfort of their idols. Look at... uh, Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. He said, I brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Later on, verse 12. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed down to them. Now that's where there's this, last week we saw there's this great danger if they didn't remove idolatry from among them, that that they might fall into that idolatry themselves. And here the worst has happened. They have fallen into that idolatry, but it goes even deeper that God didn't deliver them because they had already been committed to that idolatry in their hearts. They had already bowed down to these gods. They had already neglected the covenant that God had made with his people. All right, covenant, covenant. A covenant is this, uh, this agreement, this treaty between God and his people. It's his vow to be faithful to certain promises. But I also want us to recognize that covenants, all of the covenants in the Bible, they have a conditional aspect to them. They have a condition that says, okay, you're under this covenant, but there's, there's a condition for blessing and a condition for curses. 
And what he's saying is that all of these covenants, they, they assume covenant faithfulness. Devotion to the Lord. That you would be singular-minded in, in your worship. That he alone would be praised. That he alone would be honored. That he alone would be God. Now, it's not often how we think about covenants, but we see it reflected in the whole of Scripture. All right, think of the great covenant that, that we interact with the most, the marriage covenant. What is this? It's called to faithfulness, to marital faithfulness and, and oneness and unity. And how does that covenant get broken? What is the, the condition that we can say, no, this, this covenant is it's not in place anymore. It's, it's unfaithfulness. It's to abandon the person that they have said that they would be united to and committed to. We see that same, that same reality in the New Covenant, the New Testament covenant that Christ makes with the people. He says, yeah, you have to have faith. There really is this call to, to trust and believe in me. And that's where we have to, we can make this very simplistic and say, you know, no, it's a covenant. It's just, it's just universal all the time. No, if there's, if there's not a faithful relationship, if there's no faith, if there's no uni- unity with Christ, we've abandoned him to run after idols, then the covenant, it, it, it shifts, and these great blessings become great curses. That's what the people are experiencing here. And it's going to happen again and again and again. That again and again and again, they're tempted to, to run from God and run after idols. To choose to worship Baal or Ashtaroth or the various gods that are before them. All right. And that's where I, I say to you now, like, that, that is our great problem. That is our great struggle. That the worst thing about our hearts and about humanity and about who we are and where we stand is our, our love for idolatry and false things, for our abandoning of God, and for our trading, this God who makes amazing covenants and promises with fake gods, who make promises in vain and cannot protect them and cannot keep them and cannot show covenant faithfulness. Now, before we, uh, we throw this out completely, uh, all right, I hope none of you have worshipped Baal this week. And I, I, I guess you probably haven't. Uh, all right, who, who is he? He is one of the, the gods of these nations. He is the god of the sun and the storm. The sun and the storm. Now, why is he a helpful god then? Because your, your life depends on your crops in a very real sense. And so, if you're going to have a god in your pocket, you, wanna, you want the god that is going to bring rain when you need it, bring sunshine when you need it. And so what is this? This is going to a God that he might provide for your comfort, your stability, your life. And we shouldn't be so surprised that we still worship idols today. All right. How do we worship our, our version of idols in our culture now? All right, you can, do, you can go the really easy path and you say it with something like horoscopes and say like, oh, I'm like looking to the, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and looking for my life there. All right, it's 
pretty obvious one. Don't do that. All right, but then, then we start to see that it, it trickles down more and more. That, all right, where are we looking for hope and life and safety and comfort? And Jesus, he points out the, the God of money. And they were consumed with the oracles of the news to tell us how our, how our lives will go. Maybe we're, uh, we're going to the oracles of, of the stock market and, and look, okay, where is my future? Where is my hope? Where is my security? Or maybe we go to our job every, every day and we say, you know what, I will, I will make for myself security and comfort in life. And we start to see that it starts to suck up more and more of our life and we start to get drawn down into it. All right, these are idols. These are things that we worship that we might find some great life in them. And that would be Baal. What about Ashtaroth? All right, this is the god of fertility and love, of fruitfulness. And we realize, okay, uh, how often do we worship at the altar of, of youth and beauty or of the, the gym and the diet book? How often do we worship at the altar of pornography or romance novels or look for fulfillment in relationships and in people and we find life in them? Or maybe we like the Greek gods, the gods of pleasure and, and wine and hedonism. And we're constantly running after those things that promise freedom and escape addictions of all the various sorts, all these things that we go to, to to check out from the suffering of the world. Now, uh, those are the, those are kind of the, the worldly idols. But some of you aren't that worldly. Some of you are. Uh, but on the other side, there's the, the idols of just religion and tradition. And in our context, I think those are the more appealing. And what are the gods there? They're the gods of the law, of goodness, and performance. And there are some people who come here to church, and you don't come to worship Jesus. You come to worship yourself. And it makes you feel good, and you feel like a good person. And it gives you some comfort in yourself to know, you know what, I've done, I've done my best today. Or maybe it looks like mercy ministry, that we want gold stars for the people that we help. We want to feel like we're, we're nice, productive people of society. All right, for some of you, it looks like uh, some of us. us yeah. All right, uh, I'll get to that. Um, it looks like just the, the gods of tradition and to do things the right way and to have a, a, the right family and the right house and the right car and the right Opinions of people. All right, probably the most common in our area is just the, the God of the American dream. All right, I've counseled more couples in Cecil County, and what do they want? They want a big truck. They want some land, and they want for their children to have it better than they had. All right, they, all right their hope is in this, this American dream and traditional values and like, I'm not asking for a lot, but that is that has this great this great hope for them. That is life. 
All right, I, uh, I ask you, what are the idols you're wrestling with? Where, where do you find your great hum- comfort or joy? Where are you looking for life? We live in this world where there are a billion idols to worship every second of every day that promise hope and life and peace and joy, that promise all of these things. All right, what does it look like for you to battle them? Do you see them? Do you know them? All right, uh, what does this look like for me? Um, all right, I realized uh, one of the idols through someone's Sunday school uh, class, actually. So uh, someone was teaching my four-year-old, and she asked the question, uh, what is the chief end of man? And if you're a good Presbyterian, you should already know that. It's to be, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you're supposed to say. What did my son say? He said, have fun. <laughs> All right. And I was like, I was like, oh, like, no, that's 100%. That's not what it is. Uh, and like, it, it's kind of funny. It's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's probably what a four-year-old thinks it is. Uh, but then, then I've been looking back at like, at my life. And I realized, okay, uh, when like dad is there, it's usually my day off. And what is the first question that governs the day? What fun things should we do today? And I realized that so often I'm asking a question like, hey, what, what, what fun food do we want to do? What? Or hearing myself, and he says this, and it's the worst. He says, he says like, that's not very fun. <laughs> this isn't fun food. This isn't a fun time. I didn't have very much fun doing that. And I, I realized, okay, I say those types of things. And that functionally, that's my chief end of man is to have fun. And, and that's what we're wrestling with. All right, I know that none of you say, when you say the Westminster Confession question, that the chief end of man is having fun or making sure you have enough money to feel secure or, you know, making sure that people think well of you. But that's idolatry. What are the things you're excited about? The things you say, yay, and, and celebrate. And just to, to show that, uh, verse 10 and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I like that the Judges is pretty balanced. It's not just saying they were evil and their hearts were horrible. It also said they weren't brought up well. That just like I'm teaching Remy that the chief end of man is to have fun, they, they, were, they were not given this call to to remember the works of God and enjoy him and, and to defeat idolatry because they have this great covenantal God who loves them. No, they, they were left with nothing. And they weren't given a lot of resources to battle idolatry. They didn't realize the beauty of the covenant. They didn't realize what a God they had. And so parents, I remind us, all right, maybe you're battling idolatry well but are we giving our kids the, the tools that they need to battle idolatry as well? To, to see the idols and to kill them and to recognize them for what they are. That they would love God enough to, 
to reject the, the false. Right. I realize that's that's a huge call. That's what went wrong here in part. Right. What does it look like to battle idolatry? Where is it where are the idols in your heart? But now, what does God do to help us? What does God do to help us? All right, God, God does three things. God does three things to help us with this stuff. He doesn't remain silent first. First, he gives them over to temporary judgment. All right, verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become a thorn in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. All right, what does he do? He, he says, okay, you, you think these gods are so great. You want to worship them. All right, have at it. Let's see how that mother can deliver you. Let's see uh, what it really looks like to be governed by idolatrous people and, and their gods. And he lets oppression come upon them. He lets them be enslaved. He lets them uh, suffer under the hand of their own idolatry. All right, an illustration here. All right, do you remember the story of, of King Midas? King Midas and the Midas touch. All right, in all his greed, he prayed and he asked that, that the gods would give him the ability to turn anything that he touched into gold. And the gods granted that. And what did he discover? At first, it's, it's great. Yes, there's great power in idolatry. That idols could, could get you what you wanted, and, and he was turning things to gold until, until he turns his daughter to gold on accident. And until he sits down to a great feast and his food is turning to gold. Until he eventually starves to death in this kind of gold prison that he makes for himself. He's given over to his greed and his idolatry. All right, God in his great love. He does that sort of thing for the, for the Israelites here, and he does it for us as well. All right, it doesn't feel like love and grace. But if those idols are tearing you away from the covenant, God, if they are enslaving you, if they are going to lead to judgment and wrath, if they're going to lead to death, then what is the most loving thing? It's to help you see them for what they are and to give you a taste of death. This is the discipline of the Lord. And so much, many of us have stories where there's this one thing that we loved and that one thing gets taken away from us. All right, we have a choice. We can curse God, as, as uh, Job's wife would say, curse God and die. All right, not great advice. Uh, or... Or you can recognize, no, that, thank you, Lord, for killing my idol. Thank you for showing me for what it is. 
Thank you for keeping me from death. He is, he's great in his kindness, even in his discipline. Have you experienced that? Are you, are you experiencing that? Where are you seeing, seeing that you're called, you know, I, I should give up the ghost because all this is bringing you suffering, or you're clinging to your idol and saying, well, no, for, for this tiny little benefit, I'd rather have it than, and, and inherit all of his death. Now, second, God in his grace, he sends, he sends saviors. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. All right, he sends, he sends these judges. And what are judges? Judges are war leaders. They're war leaders. And they're, they're put in place, namely, to do the battle to do battle with these oppressive, these oppressive ites that lived in the land still, and to deliver them out of the oppression that they had fallen into in their idolatry. All right, I'm, I'm thankful we have a God who sends saviors. All right, we think of Abraham intervening for, for Lot. We think of Moses rescuing the people from Egypt. We think of Noah and the ark. We think of all of these saviors that the Lord has sent to redeem people out of their great idolatry. But there's a, there's a problem here. There's a problem that even in that grace, verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. All right, so for, for as long as mom is in the kitchen, they're, they're keeping their hand out of the cookie jar, but then the judge leaves, and there they're back with it. And each time, they're becoming more and more idolatrous. And the judge becomes less and less righteous and leads them less and less well. There's less and less time between the, the life that they've been given and the judge, and they're turning back to idolatry. And so what does the Lord do? All right. He leaves the, the oppressive people there. He leaves all of these Canaanite peoples to test them. Because he knows that after each round, their idolatry will need to be tested again. And again and again and again. They're going to go around and around and around. And their idolatry is going to be revealed. Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their, their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before any of the nations that Joshua left before he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving that quickly. He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who did not know it before. All right. This feels really weird to us. It feels really weird because why would the Lord test his people? He wanted to deliver them, but now why, why would he be putting idolatry before them? All right. This is a reality of how God deals with his people. This is how he interacts with you and I and, and the Israelites and the church. That as much as we may say in our hearts, you know, I'm, no, I don't, I don't see any idolatry there. All right, you don't see it till it's tested. You don't know till he tests you. And some of you, you, you shake your fist at God and are kind of like, well, God, if you just removed all of the temptations, then of course I'd worship you. And you'd get all the worship, and so why don't you just do it all? And then I'll have this, this perfect life, and, and won't it be glorious? Right, it'll be untested. And it won't be because you don't have idolatry in your heart. It'll be because you just have never had a chance to express it. And so God, he, he leaves those things before them that they might be tested, that their idolatry might be revealed. And I wish I had a better, a better, uh, better grades for their tests. Look at verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Their daughters took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. All right, we talked about this in Hebrew. When we were learning Hebrew, we talked about this verse because this is the most convoluted verse in all of Hebrew. All right, it's like, the ones who were there gave to the ones who were the others their wives as daughters to them. And those other ones who served the gods that they had, all right, all right why, why is it so, all right, it's supposed to tell you in the Hebrew, this is a mess. And that there is absolutely no division between Israel and the rest of the people. That wives and wives and husbands and husbands and they're all, all trading and all right, the line in the sand is completely gone. They have adopted idolatry. They have united with these other nations. And after all of this testing, we see the spiral and that they are just totally given over. All right, this is a very bleak picture. Judges is not first and foremost supposed to be this hopeful book. It's supposed to be this reality, this sober reality that we need something to intervene because left to ourselves, we're just spiraling down the course of, of idolatry. And that less tested, we tend to fail. And that all the tests that we have seen throughout history and throughout the, the history of Israel and the church, that many of those tests have failed. And some of you, you probably feel like, like, yeah, that is my life. 
that is my life. I feel like that's, I've seen the spiral. Right. What does judges say is the solution? What does judges say is the solution? It's, it's not what we thought it would be. All right, judges says, you know what? You need a king. You need a king. The judges can only get you so far. And these judges, they're spiraling down with the people as well. You know, you need a king who doesn't just go to battle with you and get rid of your suffering and get rid of the, the problems in your life. No, you need a king who will take charge. And he will lead the people. And he will take his responsibility and in all of his power and he will destroy the idols for you. He will unite all of Israel together and give them one heart for God. In the immediate context, that's King David. All of Judges is pointing towards King David, that there's this man who's after God's heart, and he will lead the people there, and he will destroy idolatry, and he will end the spiral because he will not let it move. Now, the sad part is that King David, he is this great king. But, but just like this generation, he has a son. And his son is not quite as faithful. And we see the spiral of the kings spiraling down until the exile. And we see, okay, we need, we need something better. We need someone who is faithful and who can lead and lead forever who isn't going to forget, who doesn't need to pass on the torch, who can do this for eternity. That is where we already have this, this great King Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who breaks the spiral. He breaks the spiral because... Think of, think of the way he, he endures testing. Think of Jesus before Satan in the wilderness as he attempted. All right, what does he give it? He's, he's asked to, you know, just, just use your power, not for other people, but just to get yourself a little more comfort. A little piece of bread to a starving man. How could God take that away from you? What does Jesus say? Like, no, he refuses to use his power for himself. No, I... I do not live by bread, but the word of the Lord. We see Jesus and, and, and before Satan, and Satan says, you know what, here's a little idol. It's not a big idol. How about you test God a little bit just so you know that you're his son? Jump off of a ravine and see if, see if he catches you. If he does, then you, you'll need just that, a little less faith. And you'll know that you have this great standing. Won't that be easier? to go through life that way. No, he refuses even that. And finally, he's, he's offered all of the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down one time to Satan. And he refuses. He passes the test. And we have a king who doesn't just pass the test uh, and then lead us in it. He passes the test for us. He passes the test in our place. He gives us his test results. 
We have a God who dies for us, a king who dies for us. That we are under the wrath and judgment of God for all of our adultery. And yet we have this king who, who dies for all of that wrath and all of that judgment and gives us his perfection. We have a king who will last forever and will rule forever. And he doesn't need to pass the torch. He doesn't need to have a son. No, he is the son of God. God gives his very own son to be the king, the one who is there from all eternity. He knows. He knows the covenants. He made them happen. We have a king who actually battles idolatry in our hearts. That instead of just battling the nations, he gives us resurrected, Holy Spirit-filled lives and hearts that, that really hate idolatry and love him. Right. He alone is able to break the spiral. Do you believe that? Do you receive him as king? Do you love him as king? Do you delight in him as king? Are you looking for him to be your, your hope and your glory and your joy? Are you looking for him to, to provide things you cannot earn for yourself that, that idols can, can never really bring to fruition? Do you know him as the one who, who loves you and has made covenants with you and will bring you to a promised land where there is no sin and there is no darkness and there is life forevermore? Where our hearts will finally and ultimately and forever be, be free from sin and darkness. Let us be a church that, that generation after generation proclaims that God that proclaims that king and that worships him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he breaks the spiral. We thank you that you have intervened by sending a savior and sending a king. Father, we ask that we might love him and obey him, that we might delight in him, that we might find all of our life in this king who has been given to us, and in the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom there where, where Christ reigns and where sin is defeated and, and death is no more. Father, would you give us great life in Christ, great joy in him, and would you help us to proclaim his name, we pray in Christ's name.